Hi, I'm Giacomo Mancini, and thank you for joining us on Research 2030 today. Before we get to our episode with President Andrew Hamilton, we first want to let you know that this episode was originally recorded in late February, before the WHO declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic and a growing number of nations went on lockdown. The relationship between basic and applied research, as explored in this episode, seems even more relevant now in thinking about the future of research and solving world challenges. We would also like to share that expert, curated information for the research and health community on SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus, and COVID-19, the disease, can be found and accessed on Elsevier's Novel Coronavirus Information Center. Under the Research tab, you will find the latest early-stage and peer-reviewed research on COVID-19 from journals including The Lancet and Cell Press. We have also made more than 21,000 related articles free to access on ScienceDirect. You can find the link to the Information Center in our show notes or by going to Elsevier.com. And now, onto the episode. Hi, I'm Giacomo Mancini. Welcome to Research 2030, an Elsevier podcast series in which guests from academia and beyond join us in exploring, debating, and challenging the changing research landscape. And welcome to the second of our Bye Bye Blue Sky episodes. The world is facing unprecedented challenges. Climate change alone has the power to transform our lives in unimaginable ways. With so much at stake, can we really justify blue sky studies conducted with no obvious goal in mind? Is it time to stop sinking money into satisfying our thirst for knowledge and get serious about funding practical answers that could save lives, and even our planet? Or will it end up being good old-fashioned human curiosity that delivers the solutions we are seeking? Happily, we have Dr. Leslie Thompson, Elsevier Vice President of Academic and Strategic Alliances on hand to help us explore these questions. As you may recall, in the previous episode, she spoke with Professor Lee Cronin, Regis Chair of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow in the UK, who explained why he believes Blue Sky could be the most promising option for securing our future. In this episode, Leslie is joined by New York University President Dr. Andrew Hamilton, who shares his motivations for encouraging young faculty to embrace pure research. So just thinking about your research, Andrew, because first and foremost, you're a researcher. Could you just describe what your research has been and what motivated you in your research? Leslie, I'm happy to. And research over the length of a career, and I started my independent career in 1981, so I'm, I'm uh, approaching 40 years. Of course, research changes. But I think in, in essence, I began in the broad field of, of uh, synthetic organic and supramolecular chemistry, focused very much on artificial systems, artificial recognition, artificial catalysis, using design synthetic molecules to achieve some of the remarkable characteristics that we associate with biological molecules like recognition and catalysis. And it was from then that, that I, I began to explore, well, if, we, if we're seeking to mimic biological systems? Why don't we just get in among biological systems? Why don't we think about the use of design and synthesis to 
modulate biological processes. And of course, that then brings us into the world of disease, particular areas where certain aspects, for example, of cell signaling in cancer or a protein aggregation in amyloid diseases, and how we might then use synthetic chemistry and molecular design to modulate those processes. And so in recent years, the last couple of decades, we've really focused on a particular area of biochemistry, which is protein structure and protein-protein interactions, so important in many many cellular processes, and how can we use synthetic design that in the past was more theoretical, how can we use it then to target protein-protein interactions in cancer, how can we use it to target amyloid aggregation in Alzheimer's disease, and it's been a natural kind of flow from the artificial synthetic and theoretical to the very applied in in terms of targeting particular diseases and a particular response, uh, at least in in model studies, in targeting the disease. Thank you. And you're clearly still very passionate about the research you're doing, Andrew, despite having lots of other responsibilities. Oh, gosh, now it's about 15 years ago, I got swept up into a university administration, first at Yale as provost, and then at uh, uh, Oxford as vice chancellor, and then in the last four and a bit years as the president of NYU. But I always found it really important to keep my research life alive, and I've done that. And I do it for you know for two fundamental reasons, which I've said before. One is to is to keep my street cred. You know, with with, with university faculty being able to talk in their terms, to understand and know the challenges of running a research group, getting research funding, teaching in front of a class of 40, 50 students, being able to converse with one's faculty is very important. And the other reason is to keep my sanity, because (laughs) being in university leadership can be a very surreal process sometimes. And it's actually quite valuable to get in the lab talking with my students and postdocs and colleagues about things that I really enjoy and and, and have a kind of, have a rationality to it, i.e. science and research. Whereas dealing with large organizations, particularly large academic organizations, can be often irrational. That's brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) If you think about the 40 years that you've spent in research, funders and governments love to characterize research in certain ways. Are there any particular words that you would use to characterize your research? Or has it just been a journey of exploration and following questions that you've wanted to look at? All of the above. And I think it's like so many others, I was trained in a discipline and vital in my view, the training in the in the rigor, the character of a discipline, in my case, chemistry, organic chemistry. I studied under Alan Battersby at at Cambridge and then did my postdoc with Jean-Marie Len in, in Strasbourg in, in the very early 1980s. And it was the rigor of those two two experiences, but also then seeing the potential in, in Alan Battersby's case 
organic chemistry, understanding the complexity of biosynthesis, the way in which nature puts complex molecules. In Jean-Marie Lenz's case, it was seeing how one could apply design and synthesis to create phenomena using phenomena that are familiar in biology, i.e. in in Jean-Marie's case, the, the Nobel Prize winning work on alkali metal ion recognition, the crown ethers and cryptans, and seeing the way in which one could apply design and synthesis to create molecules that had never existed on the face of the earth before. And with in that way, study them and see chemical behavior that might normally be associated with the complexity of biology or even superior to the biological examples. And so in that regard, training in a fundamental, a disciplinary area, but then seeing the potential for cross-disciplinary collaboration, applying the, the core principles of a discipline far beyond its bounds in the world of material science, in the world of biochemistry, in the world of, of disease is an exciting part of modern science and the way in which chemistry, at least it seems to me, has evolved in those 40 years that I've been involved in, in independent research. So given this interview is about Blue Skies research, how would you define Blue Skies research? It's always one of those hard things like counting the number of angels on a pinhead. You know, I suppose I would define it in research with no obvious outcome. Going into the research with no obvious application usefulness other than learning more about a particular scientific process, a particular biological process. And, you know, let me just say, in my life as a university leader, of course, I must look far beyond science as well. Yeah. And the nature of what it is to be human, the nature of the human experience. And it is in large collections of humans, in societies, the study of the social sciences without any particular knowledge of of what the result will be, what the finding will be, and the humanities. You know, I, I often use the example of you know the importance of the humanities to to help us understand what it is to be human. It is never more important than when science reaches its limits. And I think of the world of medicine and the remarkable discoveries that have been made over the last half century, that's great until there is no further treatment. And then the nature of death, and and it is to the humanities that we can turn for much insight and, and, and in many other areas as well. And so Blue Skies Research for me is something that it is vital that we continue our recognition of its importance, not, not just in the sciences, but far beyond as well. And, and what was it, George Porter, I think, the wonderful George Porter once said that uh, there is no such thing as applied science. It's just science that hasn't found an application yet. Yeah. yeah. So looking particularly in the West and the challenges to government funding for research and some of the challenges facing society, 
do you see it's more difficult now to make the case for blue skies research and that breadth of activity as opposed to problem orientated mission driven research you know in a sense there's always been mission driven research and that has from the manhattan project onwards we we've had mission driven research and of course in the world of the of corporate research whether it's bell labs or ibm or the pharmaceutical industry there have been all of which in their time have been very important parts of the research landscape the research ecosystem then it is quite right and proper that there be highly mission-driven, whether it be government-funded, whether it be corporate-funded. You know, I look, for example, in some of the challenges the world faces today, whether it be in climate change and the need for new carbon capture technologies or new, new improved efficiencies of photovoltaic systems, I think about the the issue of antibiotic resistance, which is very unlikely to be solved in the corporate setting because of the financial structures involved and will need mission-driven Manhattan projects for us to keep a flow of novel antibiotics coming. That kind of thing. I see no lessening of recognition of the place of both mission-driven and blue skies research. Do I think it's become harder to justify blue skies research in the political context? Yes, of course. And that's something because of the the way in which some of the challenges that society faces have become more clearly visible. It has naturally brought government's attention to wanting to target resources to those areas. But of course, one of the ways in which we ensure that that there is continued recognition of the importance of blue sky research is showing examples of where solutions are found in the most unexpected of places. And, and, And I think science is very good at telling those stories and those will continue, whether it's uh, new materials, the perovskites, you know, replacing silicon in in photovoltaics coming from very basic solid state chemistry studies to other areas of scientific discovery. So in your role now as a leader, both at NYU and previously at Oxford, What do you see your role in ensuring that the faculty and the young people that are engaged in the research endeavour in those institutions can cover the breadth of what they're interested in and can really make a difference to society? How do you nurture that? By always encouraging an emphasis on scholarship. And I think for me, part of the joy of institutions like Yale, like Oxford, like NYU, is that they actually, you know, being vice chancellor of Oxford is is quite an experience, such, uh, at an institution that's nearly 900 years old. And it reminds one, and you know, Yale is nearly 350 years old, NYU is nearly 200 years old. And the reminder, the ups and downs of contemporary society are important, but universities have been in existence for centuries and will be in existence for centuries. And one of the reasons that they have retained 
their core mission in a very rapidly changing world is because they've held fast to certain principles. And, and some of those principles are fundamental, like academic freedom, others like freedom of speech in, in teaching and, and research, and also a recognition and embracing of pure scholarship and making that case to young faculty when they start their careers. I had a, a, a quote when I was vice chancellor of Oxford of the utterly useless research that takes place at universities but is never useless because its application, its importance, depends upon the perspective from which it is being looked at. And, and for me, the embracing of pure scholarship, whether it be in a strong philosophy department, whether it be in a commitment to the classics and archaeology, whether it be a commitment to paleontology, you know, finding out what happened with the dinosaurs you know, isn't immediately applicable to the economy of a small European country off the northwest coast of the continent. But on the other hand, it enriches society. It reminds us what civilized societies are all about and that importance and always emphasizing the importance of pure scholarship. Thank you. You're clearly in the right place being in a university, Andrew. <laughs> you know, let me just say, you've still got to get funded. And, and <laughs> you can be as pure and, and rarefied, but you've if certainly, you know, you need less funding in philosophy than you do in, in, in high energy physics, but you've still got to get funded. And, and presenting your work in a way that is compelling to others and in certain areas is seen to have an application or at least the future application cannot be avoided. And so the more money you need, the more likely you're going to have to justify a potential future benefit or consequence of your research. I was a bit surprised. Recently, we produced a report looking at the future trends in research, um, research futures. And when we asked researchers around the world where the creative force for driving forward new knowledge would be, 27% of respondents thought it would be technology. 42% thought it would be researchers. Where would you put your money if you were looking to the next 10 years at NYU? Is it technology or researchers? You mean, is it, is it going to be artificial intelligence that's going to come up? Just that the creative force would be technology of one sort or another. Maybe artificial intelligence, maybe being able to measure different things, but that would be what drove creativity in the research process. Yeah, I guess I don't quite understand the question because technology has always driven, you know, from the wheel, from fire, you know, as always, we didn't know how to cook fillet steak until we had fire. So, you know, technology has always driven innovation. Uh, the pencil yeah. was a, a piece of rather wonderful technology using graphene. Let's not, let's not forget, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, it's a rather old piece of technology, but all of the great authors and poets in the world wouldn't have got very far without their pencil. And now they happen to be using a laptop 
that's just a glorified pencil for them in the way in which their creativity is developed. And so I, I again, I, I think it's a, it's a false question, sorry to be. We have always used technology to help us express ourselves and we will continue to do so and the technology will get ever more complex and advanced. Will we ever reach a point where the scientists disappear and we have banks of computers coming up with our next drug molecules? Maybe one day. It's hard to imagine it won't happen one day, but actually not for a very long time. And I think then that places the emphasis on the researchers themselves to to continue to be a leap ahead in terms of the recognition of what matters and the way in which it is presented to the world as an important development. Thank you. I want to turn finally to some data that I've been pondering on and just get your take on it. So it's a well-known and established fact that when academics co-publish internationally, the quality of their research as measured by citations rises. It also looks like when they co-publish with corporates, the quality goes up again. So at NYU, your overall quality of your research as measured by field weighted citation index is 2.12. When you publish internationally, that rises to 3.05. But when NYU co-publishes with corporates, it rises to 6.51. Does that data surprise you? No, not at all. And I actually think it would be interesting to look at the number when you publish with a collaborator from a different institution within your own country. How much of it is is just having the value of outside perspective on your on the day-to-day production of your research, having collaborators who question, challenge, criticize. We try to create that in the peer review process, of course, but but the day-to-day challenging of data from an outside perspective. And I think that's heightened when you have an international collaborator. And I can completely understand why it's heightened even further when you have a corporate collaborator who very often has a very clear set of goals that they seek to reach or a mission-driven purpose in the collaboration. They're also funding it and uh, possibly, and so uh, want to see something very real and direct and high quality as a result. And and let me just say something about NYU, the university that I've been president of for the last four and a bit years. It's a university that over the past many decades has committed itself to an international profile, and, and I think possibly more than any other university in, in the world, an international profile. We have major campuses in New York, in in Shanghai, and in Abu Dhabi. And we have mini campuses in 12 other places around the world, including London, Paris, and I won't go through the list. But it is through that international perspective, constantly feeding in to the, the academic process research in particular, but obviously it has a very beneficial effect in teaching as well, that you see the breadth of insight increasing and long may that continue. Of course, we're in a slightly strange world right now, 
where some of that is being questioned and particularly the role of collaborations with China and Chinese universities and Chinese corporate entities. And while, of course, it's very important that security and and the management of confidential material when it is produced is important, but it would be a very sad day if we lose the value of that cross-disciplinary but also cross-border collaboration that happens when international research groups get together. So I think in all of this, you are a very strong advocate for cross-culture, whatever that might be, disciplines, nations, different backgrounds, to really challenge each other's thinking and to push us further and faster. And also to explore unexplored areas. And to me, that's part of the the joy of research. I look at chemistry, you know, I'm I'm heading towards the end of my career 40 years ago, Chemistry was quite a different place. If you looked at what people were doing in chemistry departments, it tended to be a more classical chemistry and and 40 years before that, even more so. Now you look in a chemistry department and you'll find zebrafish, you'll find uh, animal studies going on, you'll find solid state physics being carried out, all in a chemistry department because the subject has expanded. And the same could be said for neuroscience. The same could be said for economics or or even philosophy. And I do think that new areas to be explored are constantly coming in sight. And that is a process that happens even more effectively when we cross borders of, of our discipline and cross borders in our geographically defined world. Brilliant. I'm going to close it here. Just ask you if there's anything else you want to add or say before we close. No, I think I'm I'm uh, I'm good, Leslie. Thank you. Brilliant. Great. Well, that was lovely. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you. It's clear that President Andrew Hamilton sees a future where blue sky and applied research can happily coexist. He believes that learning and exploring just for the joy of it, is what civilizations are built upon. It's what makes us human. That to secure Blue Sky's future, it's vital that researchers continue to share stories about how they found solutions in the most unexpected of places, and that he and other university leaders have a role to play in helping young faculty recognize and embrace pure research as they start out on their careers. Crucially, Andrew believes that research is never irrelevant. It just depends on the perspective you view it from. That's a statement our previous guest on Bye Bye Blue Sky, Professor Lee Cronin, would fully support. If you didn't catch Leslie's interview with Lee, it's available now. And don't forget to subscribe to Research 2030 so that you are notified when future episodes are released. Are you interested in learning more about how Blue Sky might fare in the coming 10 years? It was a key theme in Elsevier's 2019 study titled Research Futures, Drivers and Scenarios for the Next Decade. You can download the report through the URL provided in our show notes. And now that we are into our fifth episode, we would like to get your input on Research 2030 and find out what drew you to listen and what topics are of interest to you. You can find a link to our short and anonymous survey also in the show notes. And as always, you can reach out to us by email to let us know how we are doing or ask us questions. Our address is research2030 at Elsevier, E-L-S-E-V-I-E-R.com. Finally, our thanks to Dr. Andrew Hamilton for joining us here on Research 2030 and to Dr. Leslie Thompson for hosting this episode. 
I'm Giacomo Mancini, and thank you for listening.